0: Welcome to episode 86 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Jackie DeLacy. Jackie is the Managing Director of Apt Associates Australia, one of Australia's major development contractors. Prior to joining Apt, Jackie was the Head of AusAid in Indonesia, and she's had a range of other high-level roles in the aid program. Jackie is also a board member at UNICEF Australia. Jackie and I discussed the criticisms of facilities and managing contractors, in particular in the context of PNG. We also discussed the reform that's required in our aid program to promote partnerships over economic dependence. Jackie shares her strong views on why aid to Indonesia should not be reduced. Finally, Jackie reflects on her extensive career and development and how she remains positive, as well as her advice for the next generation looking to forge their careers. Jackie's advice is some of the most tangible and actionable advice I've ever heard, so definitely stay tuned until the end. We've included some Dev Policy articles by Jackie in the show notes, along with other recent articles around the role of managing contractors. The Development Policy Centre is running its annual fundraising appeal. The centre provides critical support to this podcast and of course runs the Dev Policy blog and undertakes important research around aid and development. If you appreciate this podcast and the Dev Policy blog, please make a tax-deductible donation at devpolicy.org forward slash donate. Enjoy the episode. Jackie, thanks for speaking with me. Let's start with some of the criticisms of managing contractors. You're the managing director of APT Associates in Australia, which is one of the major contracting companies delivering Australian aid. Contractors and facilities have come under a fair bit of criticism of late for being overly complex, for having very high transaction costs and for doing too much of DFAT's job for it. What's your response to those criticisms?
1: It's a good question and I have heard some criticisms of the facility model that's implemented by contractors, by various people, but to some extent I think the arguments are a bit simplistic. So, Facilities, let's talk about what a facility is. So it's a way in which a donor brings multiple small programs together under a single sort of umbrella contract. And that gives the donor more flexibility to be able to determine what its priorities are, to change how the program works over time in response to changing circumstances. So I don't think the problem is with facilities, and facilities have long been one of the tools that DFAT and formerly AusAid used to solve complex development problems. I think the more important question is, are facilities well-designed? Is their purpose clear? Are they well-managed? Are, are the right decisions being made over time? Is evidence informing that decision-making? And are they being implemented well? Do do we have the right people building the right relationships to implement the facilities? So I think the question shouldn't be around the modality. I think I think where we should be putting our attention is, are they run well? Are they designed well? Uh, is evidence informing the decisions as they go along, rather than criticising the model itself. I don't think the model should be used for all development
0: problems, but I definitely think it should be one of the tools in DFAT's toolkit. The use of facilities, though, is just one part of a broader outsourcing agenda for DFAT. What about criticisms that managing contractors are doing DFAT's job for it? Is there anything that really must be kept internal to the department?
1: Yeah, again... um I think there are swings and roundabouts. I I don't think DFAT is contracting out more than it's ever contracted out by historical averages. DFAT has always, and AusAid before it, used four modalities broadly to spend its development money. It either hired managing contractors to implement programs that it designed. It put money through multilateral institutions, the UN system or the World Bank or institutions like that. It put money into um, non-government, not-for-profit NGOs or research institutions, or it put money through government systems. So it's always had broadly four things, four ways it can spend its money. And I think contractors sit at around 23% of the total spend at the moment. And I don't think if you look across you know, the last 15 years, whether that's a particularly high number. So I don't think DFAT is contracting out more than it used to by historical averages.
0: Okay. The PNG High Commissioner to Australia Said at the February 2020 Australasian Aid Conference that facilities are now a common part of the Australian partnership with PNG, as we've just discussed as well, but regrettably they lack the equal partnership approach and so lack transparency and accountability for the PNG government. Do you
1: agree with that statement? Yeah, I I was there in the room when the High Commissioner made those comments and I was really interested in them and it would be good to get him to unpack what he means by that in more detail. I do think the partnership effectively is the relationship between Australia and Papua New Guinea in this instance and the quality of that partnership is really about the relationship between the two governments and the degree to which the two governments engage as equal partners over the decision-making of how aid money is spent um, and whether that power is sort of equally shared between the two parties. So I think if there is a problem with the partnership, it isn't about a facility modality. The facility is just another way of organising your aid effort, making it less prescriptive. It actually speaks to the quality of the relationship between the Australian and Papua New Guinea governments, if that's what his concern is. I would say it's always been hard for um, donors to get the right relationship with partners in country, in large part because, you know, the government of Papua New Guinea is super busy, right, implementing its own agenda and having the time and space to meaningfully engage in how an aid program is run is a really it's it's down the list of priorities for really busy secretaries and senior public servants and ministers. So that ability of Papua New Guinea to seriously engage in decision-making over aid programs has always been limited by the fact that in resource-constrained environments, um, governments are often very busy and they find it hard to Engage um, meaningfully in direction setting for aid programs. But I do think there is something, a well designed facility should be designed in a way that you have really good governance um, mechanisms that oversight the decision making within it. The PNG governance partnerships, which is one of the biggest um, facilities that we have in PNG, is harder. <laughs> I think, for the partnership to work simply because it crosses many different sectors. So if you had only a a facility that existed in health, then you would have the health department working with DFAT and that governance arrangement would be clear. With the big PNG governance partnerships, it crosses multiple sectors. So you need multiple parts of the PNG government coming together and engaging in it. And I think that has been hard for PNG to do and to resource appropriately. So I do think you can design facilities in ways that make it easier for partner governments to um, engage with. And the broader the facility, the harder it is. So I think there is something in that that the, that the High Commissioner has identified. But at its core, this isn't a facility problem. This, If there's a problem with the... With PNG not having appropriate decision-making power or feeling like it has ownership of the program, then that's an issue between the two governments. And it's not about whether it's a facility or a traditional development project.
0: As you say, APT does manage a couple of large facilities in Papua New Guinea. Whilst you have said this is an issue between the two governments, have these criticisms been brought to you at all in recent years?
1: Um, Look, there's been tension, you know, inevitably Australia and PNG we're very close but there's always going to be when you're when you're very close neighbours with lots of sensitive issues um, that you're navigating let's think about Bougainville referendum for independence or um, what Australia's interests might be in keeping the Kokoda track open versus Papua New Guinea's interests which may be let's look after the communities in Kokoda, but we want all communities, rural communities in Papua New Guinea looked after. Australia has particular interests in the parts of Papua New Guinea that that are close to Australia's territorial borders. So where we have communities in the Torres Strait intermingling, Australia cares deeply about tuberculosis in places like that, whereas the Papua New Guinea government cares about tuberculosis wherever it sits in Papua New Guinea. So there's always going to be tensions I think natural tensions between Australia and Papua New Guinea over priorities over how aid money is spent and what is done and certainly when you deal with the large facilities and you have a broad range of issues that you're dealing with you're going to come up against um, some of those sharper decisions so yes there's been points in implementation of our big facilities where it's been really clear that there's some tension between how Australia and how Papua New Guinea might want aspects of the program to move forward. How it's resolved is really through the building of relationships and trust between the Australian High Commission staff and the PNG government people. Our job is not to sit between those two, it is to implement what they've agreed. Um, So the more that we can encourage those two partners to work together and have an effective way of resolving differences of opinion then we can get on and do our work but we we don't make those decisions and quite frankly Australia doesn't want its managing contractors to sit at that policy table it wants to make the policy decisions with PNG so
0: obviously on this show we have a lot of discussions about the Australian aid program to Papua New Guinea i understand you used to run the aid program to Papua New Guinea when you were at AusAid. Just a few weeks ago on the show, Jonathan Prite from the Lowy Institute said that aid has never been less relevant to PNG given the declining percentage that aid makes up of total GDP. And a lot of people think that aid to the country needs to be completely reformed. What are your views on Australia's aid program to PNG?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's perfect, but nor was it perfect when I was <laughs> managing the PNG and g aid relationship. Um, it, P&G is a very complex and challenging country to achieve development outcomes. And the fact that it is, you know, it ha- has not achieved any of its MDGs just speaks to how challenging an environment it is to get good development results. I I think there's three things that uh, really need... And I I agree with a lot of what Jonathan thinks about the aid relationship to PNG. Um, And I thought that the paper that the Lowy Institute did on how to reform the aid program to PNG had a lot of really good suggestions that should be taken into account by both the PNG and Australian governments. Um, But I think there's three things that really matter to me. One is setting expectations at a realistic level. While Australia gives a lot of aid to Papua New Guinea at around $500 million a year, it is a tiny amount of money compared to the degree of change that we're trying to leverage. Um, If you look at it on a per capita basis, in Australia, the ACT government spends double the amount of aid, amount per capita, trying to reform, you know, on the bus subsidies in Canberra. That's the amount of scale of change we would look for that volume of funding in Australia is a functioning bus system. When you look at what we're trying to do in Papua New Guinea, which is a much more difficult environment, when we're trying to influence maternal health, tuberculosis, stop polio outbreaks, prevent COVID uprisings, and that's just within the health sector. You know, we're also trying to reform infrastructure spending, do better um, economic governance, uh, make sure that Bougainville is able to move to its new autonomy arrangements um, peacefully. Uh, You know, like we're just doing, you know, reform the education system, let Papua New Guinea's children have better education outcomes. The scale of our ambition compared to the money we're spending is just misaligned, right? So I do think we need to get expectations much more realistically set on both sides about what sort of change we can deliver with that amount of money. The second thing we need to do, and this is something Jonathan talks about, is we need to focus. Like the, the, it, It's part of the same argument, right? It sounds like a lot of money, but actually when you think about what you're trying to do in a country of nearly 9 million people it's not a lot so we have to do fewer things and do them better so pick a few areas stick at them long term and really focus on trying to get results there Um, the third thing I would say is and this has been my experience through lots of years of development is we often focus on trying to solve problems that we care about and many of them are really good problems to care about but where we'll get traction and where we'll get change is when we're focusing on problems that PNG really cares about. Uh, so we can't be driven by our priorities. We've got to be driven by where there is genuine commitment to reform within PNG, and we can get behind and leverage that reform. But we can't make change where there that commitment and those resources are not there in Papua New Guinea. At best, we put band-aids on, and sometimes that's worth it. Sometimes that's a, a decision Australia takes is we'll, we'll just keep the band aids on. But if you're actually looking for transformational change, you can only work in areas where PNG itself is willing to put its shoulder to the wheel and really affect change.
0: And do you have a position on what areas that would be for PNG? No, because again, this is the problem when it's us
1: making that call. I actually think we've got to sit down with, with, with Papua New Guinea and really talk about in pretty serious ways where they really want to see change and where they're they're demonstrating that they're putting their own effort and resources into. A, A classic area that's been a struggle between us has been in the health sector, where Australia really does want better health outcomes in PNG, but we've seen PNG government over many years reduce the amount of spending it is putting into the health sector uh, so you know we we invest a lot australia puts a lot of money into the health system png is putting less every year into the health system um, you know you have this c- incredible misalignment in priorities um, between the two governments so i think i think we need to sort of honestly not just hear from png about what their priorities are but follow the money. Where are they putting their own effort? Um, where are they putting their best people? Where is their reform agenda going? Um, and how do we get behind that rather than sometimes what politicians say and what they actually do can be two different things in every country, of course. This isn't just B&G. This is Australia too. So I think we need to really analyse where they're putting their money and their effort.
0: I love the camera bus analogy. I've, I've never heard that before. So moving on now outside of PNG, prior to the pandemic, the Australian government was developing its now postponed new development policy. And one of the points that you made during those consultations was don't forget Southeast Asia and Indonesia. You used to run Australia's aid program to Indonesia and now a lot of people would say that Indonesia is big enough to look after itself. You obviously disagree. Why shouldn't Indonesia be graduated from the Australian Aid Program?
1: Indonesia is a country that, at least if you take COVID-19 out of it, um, was going along in a positive trajectory. So it's a country that is genuinely making progress on across a uh, very broad range of development outcomes whether you look at a child stunting maternal mortality rate um gdp per capita employment um a, on a whole range of pretty objective development outcomes the trajectory in indonesia is a positive one but it's not there yet um it is so far from there so What I worry about is Australia makes decisions to exit from countries because it doesn't have enough money to do what it wants to do. And it uses the middle income country argument as a reason to exit rather than a genuine analysis of what the needs are and what the vulnerabilities are in those countries this argument is really a budget argument we've got 40 percent less aid money than we thought we had where do we put our money and how do we justify exiting from countries so this middle income country argument is used a lot but i think it is superficial because these countries are still very vulnerable and while their trajectory is going in the right directions shocks can have a big impact and it will be interesting to watch how covid what covid's impact will be on indonesia and its trajectory what conflict between china and the us and you know, reductions in global trade and more national, more nationalistic and less regionalism will have on a country like Indonesia, which has a very open trading system and is very dependent on other economies in Southeast Asia and and North Asia. So I don't think it's a done deal that Indonesia is, uh, doesn't need our support. Um, Again, at the last ANU conference, there was this wonderful slide put up that showed that there's 130 million Indonesians living below, on an income below the 11 million people in the Pacific, the total population of the Pacific. So we spend a billion dollars a year in the Pacific for 11 million people. And Indonesia, on our border, has 130 million people living poorer below the below the income of those pacific islanders and we spend what 300 million on indonesia on that 130 million people and we spend a billion dollars on the 11 million people in the rest of the pacific there is no way that is justified from a development um, perspective that is just national interest driving those decisions so no indonesia is not and many of the countries, if you look at the Philippines, many of the countries in 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 the Asia Pacific are vulnerable and will remain vulnerable. Um, and Australia's decisions about how it allocates its aid money need to be very um, aware of what those vulnerabilities are. I think, and as I say, I think the the argument has largely been, how do we exit because we've got less money, not what what is a gen what genuinely makes sense from a development or strategic perspective
0: we'll come back to the national interest point in a moment but first when you say the middle income country argument just doesn't stack up on that basis would any country ever graduate from an aid program or should we expect to give aid to the same countries for a very long time
1: no i do think but but Like, let's look at the facts. If you, I mean, a middle income country is just a way of, it's not middle income like most Australians would understand it. I mean, I think on a per capita basis, Indonesia is 30% richer than Papua New Guinea, right? It's not twice as rich. It's not three times as rich, but we will spend 50 times the amount of aid in Papua New Guinea as Indonesia. Should maybe we should be spending 30% more in Papua New Guinea than in Indonesia. But the marginal difference in wealth between these countries is relatively small, just because they have a different classification system. Actually, when you look at child mortality rates, maternal mortality rates, child stunting, I think Indonesia's still got something like between 30 and 40% of its children are stunted, which means they're they have not had enough nutrition um, and will be cognitively impaired for life. This is not a rich country. I think the difference between what you do in middle-income countries and what you do in lower-middle-income countries is, or, or poorer countries, low-income countries, it's how you work and what you do. It's not whether or not you should engage, but the way you engage is very different in an Indonesia compared to a small island state in the Pacific but the argument about whether is
0: is really marginal. Okay, coming back to your point about the national interest now. A few years ago you expressed concern about how aid was increasingly being framed in reference to the national interest and without reference to aid effectiveness or to altruism. That was in 2017. Why does that matter? And what direction do you think we're going in now? Are we going towards the national interest argument or towards the altruism argument?
1: I think there's always been Um, So I've been working on international development for 30 years now. um, And as long as I've worked on Australia in one way or another connected to Australia's development efforts, we've always had this interplay of development and national interest on the agenda. Um, I do think when we had an independent aid agency, the primary focus of the development effort was on... um, development effectiveness, but development effectiveness in a way that worked for the national interest. But the first priority was development effectiveness. For example, um, putting money into learning outcomes for poor Indonesian children. Uh, You know, if we can improve educational attainment of poor indonesian kids in the long run there are you know women will have fewer children they'll have healthier children um, the productivity of the country will go up their resilience in the face of shocks will be higher their vulnerability to islamic extremism will be lower but there's a so there and and almost every development statistic you can think of in terms of health outcomes everything is improved by better education so i think when you put development first and say, actually, we care about poor kids' education attainment, there is national interest benefits, but they tend to be longer term national interest benefits. The national interest benefit to Australia of better, better educated Indonesian children, we're not going to realise for 10, 20 years, right? So, when, so you can see how national interest is at play, but you're putting development effect, Where can we have the biggest impact on the long-term development of Indonesia? What I think we have now is where we put national interest first. When we think about how national interest is framed um, at the moment, it is largely around shorter-term, more transactional uh, decisions. So how do we increase Australia's influence? How do we counter China's influence? Uh, Which is largely about how do we make sure elites in these countries preference Australia's views over other countries' views. And if that is the purpose of your aid program, is to strengthen your influence amongst elites, you end up with a set of programs that will focus on, for example, building lovely new offices for the Prime Minister's Department in Honiara or um, roads in Prime Minister's electorates. They're all still worthwhile things to do, but you're putting influence and access ahead of long-term development and I think that's the real challenge we have at the moment is when you put national interest first especially as you interpret it in a sort of more transactional influence driven way compared to development effectiveness your choices of what you invest in are very different. One of the concerns I raised back in 2017 wasn't just national interest it was the securitization of the aid language that aid was largely about protecting national security interests, and my concern about, in particular, the framing of national interest around Australia's security, um, is twofold. One, I think you end up with a really narrow selection of topics that you will um, you will focus on, the ones that are very linked to security, national security. So, customs reform, um, uh, transnational, you know, reducing opportunities for transnational crime. Um, uh, Those sorts of agendas will be preferenced um, as opposed to more classic development agendas as well, such as children's education or investing in health systems reform.
0: It's interesting to think about this in the context of substantially increasing the defence budget last week uh, as part of the national interest?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I was disappointed because I think um, many other countries, wealthy, progressive countries, uh, see the interplay of good development and and defence spending as something that should go together, not be at the expense of each other. And if you look at the United States, it's, which is We're in America, you know. My, our, the company that owns us is American, so I deal a lot with um, colleagues in the U.S. And even under the Trump administration, we have not seen aid volume fall, and that is because Congress uh, really supports the aid investments, and it supports it largely because of very influential ex-senior military people, generals, ex-generals, ex very senior military people, are constantly advocating to Congress about the value of investing in development as one of the tools in the strategic kit of the United States. Um, other, If you look at Boris Johnson's speech when he announced the merger of uh, DFID into the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, again, he talked about the need for the aid program, the development program to play a big strong leadership role in helping the uk position itself in a in a, a more strategically contested world so other countries see that these two halves are really critical in australia we've seen the government invest more in only one aspect, which is the de- we've seen increase after increase in the defence budget, and we've seen a 40% drop or 30 to 40% drop in aid spending.
0: And I don't I just don't think that makes sense. Do you think we're lacking military leaders in Australia that are advocating for the aid sector in the way that they are in Congress in the US?
1: Well I, I am surprised that there isn't a broader constituency about why development matters and why it complements military expenditure but I don't sit in the so I don't actually know if our military leaders are advocating it or not and our political leaders are not listening but what I do know is we've ended up in a situation in which it's it's really out of kilter and it's out of kilter compared to nearly every other wealthy country in the world. Um, Mm. So I, I can't I don't know what the problem is but I think it would do us all better if we could have more conversations around defence and development um, policy and how they sit together, not just see them as separate, relatively competitive in a competitive world.
0: Hopefully we see more dialogue between the defence, development and diplomacy sectors moving forwards. Just a few reflections on your career now to finish. You've obviously had a remarkable career in development, both in the government and in the private sector. And I know you're also on the board of UNICEF. You've seen more than most in this time. Have all of the decades of experience you've had made you cynical about aid and development, or is it still a career that you'd recommend to others?
1: No, I'm not cynical at all. I love it. Um, And I would definitely recommend it to others. I think I can't, think of a career in which the work that you do has more meaning and impact. I really, it is, it is a, it is profoundly meaningful. I mean, every day you get to work on issues that have impact on people's lives who are incredibly worse off than ourselves. So, and we know that a lot of us get joy and satisfaction out of working on issues that matter. So I think development is definitely right up there. I mean, I think you can work on other social issues as well, domestic issues that would give you that benefit. You also get to work, meet and work with extraordinary people um, who've done amazing things and they're incredibly inspirational, incredibly generous. So you'll just come across hundreds of them in your career. Uh, And I keep in touch with many of them um and they bring me great joy just knowing they're out there in the world and that I have some personal interaction with them so you get to to meet and work with extraordinary people and the final thing I would say is there's just so much opportunity to learn and grow there's so many great books written podcasts knowledge that is generated we're constantly learning so I think I don't think you can enjoy work over a whole career unless you have the opportunity to continue to learn and grow. Um, And I think development is one of those sectors where there's a lot of investment in knowledge and learning. And um, so from that perspective, it's, it's incredibly rewarding as well.
0: Do you think there are any particular challenges for women in this sector? Yeah, it's a good question. I... Not
1: generally speaking, because I think there are a lot of women in development. And in fact, when I was in AusAid, we were predominantly women. Now I'm in Apt, it's predominantly women. Um, so I think it is a career in which women have large representation. So uh, I don't think it is hard for women to work in development. I think there's been points in my career as a woman getting into senior roles that have been challenging. I don't think they're specific to the development sector, but I think managing being a mum and playing a senior role, either in a private sector company or in government, I found hard at times. And I think I spent maybe 10 years of my career when I was in my mid-30s to mid-40s, where I wasn't able to progress because I simply had other priorities. You know, I was having babies, working part-time, you know, and, and you know, or trying to have babies. And that's okay. You know, what I've realised now I'm in my 50s, now I'm 52, is that you can spend 10 years where that's not your priority is to progress your career and that you really can spend that time focusing on other things. And then later, as your children grow up, you can re-engage back in your career. So I sort of wish I had had the patience and not felt anxiety about stepping back for 10 years at that point. Um, You know, I, I wish I'd felt more zen about it. I felt more conflicted about it at the time. And I think that is just a challenge that in particular women face, but also men who are very involved in their children's upbringing face. Um, I, I do think one of the challenges of development is you have to spend, to do it well, you have to spend a lot of your life living and working in developing countries. And again, that's fine when you're single and you're young, but when you have partners who have jobs, when you have children who you've got to get educated, and some of those countries, a lot of them don't have proper high schools, it gets harder. There are challenges, I think. You have to transition into roles that are much more headquarters-based, which may be not as fulfilling. So there are some, some challenges, but I don't think they're challenges that are unique for women.
0: Yeah, that's really good advice for someone who's at a midpoint in their career and is looking to pull back in particular areas. What about someone who's just starting out in their career? What advice would you give someone wanting to get into the development sector?
1: I, well, I'd definitely say go for it, but I would uh, I'd also say, make sure you get a good skill. Like we don't want people with just the right attitude and will. We actually development needs skilled professionals. So focus on getting a really good skill. I would I now tell people, get a master's in monitoring and evaluation to go with whatever the skill you has, because I think one of the best gifts you can give yourself over a career is the ability to, Analyze whether things are working or not, um, objectively, and and being able to reinvest back and, and encourage reinvestment back in things that are working. So I think having being literate in monitoring and evaluation is a critical development skill for everyone. So I would I would ask everybody who's at university wanting to do development do some courses, if not a whole masters in M&E, to add to your toolkit. Um, and the third thing I'd say is while you're young go and live and work in developing countries there is no better time to do it do it as a volunteer do it through a NGO do it through a scholarship it doesn't matter but I think it's really hard to do development if you haven't to get a professional job in development if you haven't lived and worked or lived and studied or got a local language and a deeper appreciation of what it's like if you're australian i would definitely encourage you to work in the pacific so go to mel and in particular melanesia so go and work in Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea or Vanuatu. And I think if you can thrive in those environments, you've got skills that will see you through a lifetime of development.
0: <laughs> I love how tangible that advice is. Most of the time when we ask people for career advice, they say, be true to yourself. And you've said, get a master's in anemone M&A and move to Vanuatu. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. No. All right, Jackie, thanks so much for your time. That was episode 86 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre with Jackie DeLacy. We'll see you next week.